Uh, yeah, so like Scott said, uh, my name is Jeremy, and I know many of you, but I don't want to presume all of you know me. Uh, so I am visiting my mom this week, uh, Rhoda, and uh, I've come with my wife, Jordy, and my 10-month-old baby, Leah, and we're visiting from British Columbia in Abbotsford. And uh, I'm currently serving as a pastoral intern at a church called Northview Community Church, where we attend and where I work. And I'm currently working on my Master's of Divinity uh, with a joint degree from both Northwest Baptist Seminary and Mennonite Brethren Seminary. So <clears throat> despite living in BC currently, I grew up living in the area. So I've lived in Vancouver Hill and Hawkesbury, Lorient. Alexandria, Dalkeith, so I, I grew up in this area. Uh, I went to PCPS. I also graduated from VCI in 2012, and I was the first graduating class from the new school, which is not really so new anymore because it's been 12 years. Uh, but when I went to VCI, I was part of the cross-country team, um, and we had a pretty decent track team while I attended. Uh, which meant we went to regionals, and uh, our regionals took place at Plantagenet, the high school there. And uh, the first time I ran there, I, <laughs> I was very silly and forgot my running shoes for a track meet somehow. Uh, if you know me, you're probably not surprised, but in classic fashion, I forgot my uh, running shoes for a track meet. And I only realized this as I was getting on the bus to go to the track meet. And I, I, when I realized, I, I kind of panicked and I didn't know what to do. So I asked our, you know, the, our coach, Mr. Lee, uh, what, what I should do. And he said, just go run, check the lost and found, and see if there's a pair of running shoes there that you can use. And fortunately, there was a single pair of shoes that were my size of running shoes that I can use. And so this was very fortunate for me. However, there was an issue with them. Uh, there is no grip on the bottom, like at all. They were so bald. And, uh, you know, it was, it was fine. When I got there, I started my race and, you know, with my new shoes, quote unquote, new shoes. But, uh, you know, it turned out it was, it was okay. There were some rolling hills. Um, and it was, wasn't too big an issue for me. Like, it had started to rain, so it was a little bit slick out. There were some rolling hills, but nothing too crazy. And so, uh, I was fine. I was keeping up with everyone with these new shoes. Until I came around this corner. And if you've, you know, if you've run, been there, or if you've driven by the school, you can't really see. But you come around a corner into the bush, and all of a sudden, there's a, a really steep hill, like, quite steep. It picks up all of a sudden. And I saw this massive clay hill in front of me and I, I panicked. I, did, I didn't know what I was going to do. So it had been raining for a while, like I had said. And it was very steep and slippery because it was clay and clay and water do not mix. So it just kind of creates a sheen. And so I had tried several times to run up this hill, but in a cartoonish fashion, I would run up and just kind of run and spot for a few seconds and then slide back down. So it was a race. So I tried doing this two or three times, but I couldn't just stop and, and you know, think about what I was doing. I had to, you know, I was quite under pressure to keep running. 
So I ended up climbing up this hill on my hands and knees because I didn't have uh, good running shoes. I didn't have my running shoes. And I struggled more than anyone else. Like I was keeping up, but then all of a sudden I fell quite behind. So I was unprepared for this hill and it ended up really costing me. I ended up finishing that race in last place. And I was absolutely covered in mud, having to crawl up on my hands and knees. And it was humiliating. And it was all because I was unprepared. So more recently, now that I live in British Columbia, I don't run as much. Not, not just because of this race, but I just moved on. And I am now a huge advocate for cycling. I love biking. Um, so when I moved to BC, I got a job at a, at a bike shop. Uh, where I've worked for three years, and I fell in love with the sport of mountain biking. If, you know, if you're around me for any length of time, I won't shut up about it, so. <laughs> um, but yeah, I, I love to mountain bike. And because of this, I tell my friends about it all the time. I'm like, hey, you guys should get involved. It's a lot of fun. And I think, like, most of my friends' reactions have kind of been a little hesitant. You know, when they think mountain biking, they, they're prone to think, oh... I'm going off these 40-foot jumps or, you know, dropping off 30-foot cliffs. It's this extreme view that they have. And while that is something some people do, it's, like, way out of my skill level. Even though I consider myself a pretty good rider, I would never touch anything. But I tend to ride a lot more calm trails. But despite, uh, you know, me not really having to do anything with this, like, this extreme end of the sport... It, it can still be dangerous, right? It's not like people have these ideas of, you know, they don't really want to get involved in mountain biking because it's safe, you know? Like, people are hesitant because it is dangerous. And you can get seriously hurt. And I've crashed, and for that reason, I always wear a helmet. And I always, I always have. I always will. One particular time, I was riding, and uh, my front wheel got stuck between... Uh, between some roots, and my front suspension was particularly soft that day, so I hadn't filled it up all the way. And so it kind of took my weight, and I ended up flipping over my bars, and my bike landed on my head. But like I just said, I was wearing my helmet, I always do, I was fine. But here's the thing, you know, I, I walked away fine from the crash, but, you know, no one goes mountain biking planning to crash. It was something unexpected. Uh, However, I was clearly prepared for this unplanned incident. Even though it was unexpected, I was prepared. And this is the point that Jesus is making in our text today, and that I will be making today as well, that we need to be prepared. So today we're in Matthew 25, verses 1 to 13, and uh, I'll be making three points. So in verses 1 to 2, my first point, we'll see the fools and the wise. In verses 2 to 7, we'll look at the wise and their supplies. And then in verses 8 to 12, we'll look at the fools and their demise. So the fools and the wise, the wise and their supplies, and then the fools and their demise. And then afterwards, in verse 13, we'll look at some applications for us today. So, first point, the fools and the wise. So I'll read verses 1 to 2 for us. Then 
the kingdom of heaven will be like ten virgins who took their lamps and went to meet the bridegroom. Five of them were foolish and five were wise. So even in this first two verses or these first two verses, there are some important details that we should take note of that set the scene for the rest of the text. Jesus begins this parable by saying, Then the kingdom of heaven will be like. In this phrase, he is saying two things. First, when he begins, he says, then. And we can understand that Jesus is continuing his train of thought from what he previously said. Jesus is building off of what he just said in the previous passage. And some translators, they don't write then. So I think the NIV and the uh, Good News translation, they'll use an even more literal phrase than just then. It says, at that time. And that should cause us to ask the question, well, at what time? What time is Jesus talking about? And the answer is the time Jesus was just speaking about, like I just said. So second, he is also saying what the kingdom of heaven will be like. And we should note that this is a future tense sentence, what the kingdom of heaven will be like in the future. Both of these words make it clear that Jesus is continuing his train of thought and building upon what he was just speaking about, which was his second coming. Now, I obviously wasn't here last week, but I do want to do good exegetical work in, and, you know, in studying our text. Uh, and, that looks at, and that means looking at the context of the passage, not just what this text says, but the text behind it and what the text after it says as well. And how those inform the meaning of this text. So when we look at last week's passage, Matthew 24, verses 45 to 51. If you remember, or if you weren't here last week, like I wasn't, Jesus is talking about his return. He gives a parable of two servants. A good servant who prepares food for his master while his master is away. Um, and when he, for when he returns. And a wicked servant who goes out and parties and uh, does all kinds of foolish activities while he was, uh, when he was commanded uh, to, to be preparing food for his master, even though his master had been delayed. And of course, uh, you know, last week's text, it focused primarily on what the wicked servant looked like. Yet, this begs the question for us today, Okay, well, if that is what a wicked servant looks like, he's going to go out, ignore his responsibilities. Well, what does it mean to be a good servant? And what does a good servant look like? And so that's what Jesus is teaching us today. He's primarily focusing in on what a wise or good servant looks like this week. And he answers that question. And he tells us that his return will be like a group of ten virgins who took their lamps and went to meet the bridegroom. Again, in this sentence, there's some details that need to be explained and brought out so we kind of have a fuller understanding of what's going on. So first, uh, the ten virgins, they they took their lamps. So the lamps is kind of the first thing. And, uh, you know, Jesus, he was speaking to first century Jews. He wasn't speaking to us 
in, you know, in 2023, but he was speaking to ancient people in the first century, and they didn't have lamps like, like I have here or, or above us. You know, they had uh, oil lamps. And when you hear oil lamps, your first inclination might be to think of like, you know, at an old cabin, there's like a, you know, old lamp like that that would hang on the wall or something. And that's a little bit of a closer picture of what's going on, but not quite, um, you know, quite what they're using. So if you've seen Aladdin, like the 1992 movie, or I guess the new one, uh, you know, Aladdin, he rubs this magic lamp and the genie comes out. And that would be something more like what their, what their lamps look like in, in the first century Israel. So it's kind of funny. I don't know if you've seen the movie or not, but I always thought like Aladdin's lamp looked like a teapot to me. Uh, so if you're lost, if you have, for some reason, if you've never seen Aladdin, um, just picture a teapot, I guess. Um, you know, I'm a little teapot. Yeah, you know. Uh, so in the, where the tea was stored in the basin, uh, it would be filled with olive oil as a sort of fuel. And uh, the spout, it would have like a, a wick shoved into it as to draw the oil up. And that would be lit like a candle on fire uh, to, you know, to create light. That's what lamps are for. They're to create light. And so, yeah, the, the oil would be pulled up by the wick and it would be burned to light the area. So the second detail that we should take note of is that the, bride, or the virgins, they're going to visit a bridegroom. And so the bridegroom, or groom as we would just say today, it makes it clear that there is wedding language being used here in this text. We should have a wedding in mind, and, it, and having a wedding in mind fills in some of the other details for us. Now, I've never been to a first century Judean wedding, and I, you know, I'm far too young, and I'm sure most of you are far too young to go to a first century Judean wedding. Uh, so I'll fill you in on some of the blanks that I was reading about, about what this event would look like and what the original audience, what they would have known, what they, that Jesus doesn't really tell because they would just assume, you know? Uh, so when Jesus uses the image of the virgins, he isn't just speaking of their sexual fidelity. He, the word in Greek that we understand as virgin, parthenos, can mean both virgin as we would understand it today, or it would also be uh, a young woman. And so, it, this is a bit of an aside, but like, a lot of liberal theologians, they'll push this point, like, the virgin birth, for them, it's just, you know, it's this sign of, uh, you know, a young woman having a child, but it's not really miraculous, so how is it a sign? But, so it's the same word being used, so we can understand it both, uh, you know, for purity, as we understand today, or both as just a young woman and these girls would have been like bridesmaids for us. However, unlike modern bridesmaids who just stand beside the bride at a wedding and look pretty during the service, they had a very important role. So the reason they're going to the groom as bridesmaids with lamps is to lead him in a procession from him entering the town to the bride. So it's like how back in May... Uh, when King Charles III, when he was crowned king, it, he, he didn't just show up. No, but he was in a procession. 
he was brought all around the city of London and he was paraded around. And it's the same thing with these bridesmaids, except uh, unlike King Charles, you know, I don't know, on the West Coast, when it happened for us, it was like, like three in the morning or something. But in London, it was, it was midday, it was noon. But unlike, you know, in, in London, for these bridesmaids, this would have taken place at night. And so they needed to light the way. And not only, like, they didn't have street lights, so they needed these oil lamps. And because it was so dark, they, it would make a big spectacle. Everyone would know that it is the groom coming. He is arriving. Yet, the theme of the bridegroom isn't a new theme in, Maskell, in Matthew's gospel account. So back in Matthew 9, verses 14 and 15, Jesus is asked a question. So we read, Then the disciples of John came to him, saying, Why do we and the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast? And Jesus said to them, Can a wedding guest mourn as long as the bridegroom is with them? The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and they will not fast. Jesus tells them, or Jesus is telling them, his disciples aren't fasting because he is with them. At a wedding, you go and you celebrate. You eat and, and you hang out with the, the wedding party. You know, It's a time of celebration. That's what Jesus is saying. That's why his disciples aren't fasting, because they're with him. Because he is the bridegroom. And Jesus makes a comment uh, about him being the bridegroom in Matthew 9. And he would pick up on this theme again later. And he would do so in our text today. He is the bridegroom that the virgins are meeting. He is talking about his return because the bridegroom is no longer with them. The bridegroom is no longer with us. Jesus then makes a a sharp uh, distinction between the two virgins. There's two groups of them. He says, five of them were foolish, while five were wise. And this is an important phrase because it sets up the rest of the text and the meaning of the parable for us. Here, Jesus uses a common motif or a common theme that is found throughout Scripture. The contrast between being wise and being foolish. This theme is heavily used throughout all of Scripture and especially within the book of Proverbs. It's it's frequented over and over and over. So, for example, I pulled three verses. So, first, Proverbs 1.7. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Fools despise wisdom and instruction. Proverbs 1, uh, sorry, Proverbs 14.3. By the mouth of a fool comes a rod for his back, but the lips of the wise will preserve him. And then Proverbs 28.26. Whoever trusts in his own mind is a fool, but he who talks, or he who walks in wisdom will be delivered. Matthew likewise picks up on this, this theme, the contrast of fools versus the wise. And he writes in Matthew 7, verses 24, where, Jesus, where he's recording Jesus speaking, and, and he says, Therefore, everyone who hears these words of mine, this is Jesus speaking, 
and puts them into practice is like a wise man who builds his house on what? The rock. The rain came down and the streams rose and the wind blew and beat against the house. Yet it did not fall because it had foundation on the rock. But everyone who hears these words of mine and does not put them into practice is like a foolish man who builds his house on what? The sand. The rain came down, the streams rose, the wind blew and beat against that house and it fell with a great crash. All of scripture speaks highly of being wise and poorly of those who act foolishly. The text we are in today is no different. We should seek to be wise as the people of God and avoid being a fool. And this begs the question, well, what separates the two? What's the difference between them? What is Jesus saying in this parable that's unique that we can look and say, yeah, I want to be like that. I want to be wise. I don't want to be foolish. What makes one group wise and what makes the other group of virgins foolish? Well, as we keep reading and move on to our next point, that question gets answered. In the wise and their supplies, the second point of the text. So we'll read in verses 3 to 7. For when the foolish took their lamps, they took no oil with them. But the wise took flasks of oil with their lamps. As the bridegroom was delayed, they all became drowsy and slept. But at midnight, there was a cry, Here is the bridegroom, come out to meet him. Then all those virgins rose and trimmed their lamps. So we look at verses 3 and 4, and we can see that there is a clean line that divides them, that divides the fools from the wise. The foolish virgins, they took absolutely no oil with them. While the, wise, while the wise virgins, they took extra oil with them. And it seems like a strange division. So why is this the thing that divides them? Why is, you know, how much oil they have on them, why is that what makes them wise versus what makes them foolish? And the answer to that question is in verse 5. Where Jesus tells us it's because the bridegroom is delayed. So the virgins knew what their role was. They were to go out into the dark and lead the bridegroom. However, they didn't know when he was returning. What made them wise was their preparedness to do the job that they were supposed to do. What made them wise was their preparedness to do the job that they had been called to do. On the other hand, we see the opposite uh, with the foolish virgins. They knew the exact same thing. They knew what their job was. They knew what they were supposed to do. They knew uh, what they needed to, uh, to, how they needed what they needed, or they knew what they needed to do the job they were called to do. They knew they needed these lamps to guide in the darkness. They knew they needed the extra oil You know, that the wick would be soaked in in oil, but it wouldn't really last that long. It needed that fuel source to continually pull oil up. They knew what they needed, 
And they also knew, like the wise virgins, that the bridegroom could take as long or as little to, uh, to come back as he needed. They didn't know what time he was coming back. It wasn't about what they knew. It was about how they acted, which made them wise or what made them foolish. Yet they did not bring extra oil for themselves. Wisdom and folly is not about how smart we are. It is about what we do with the knowledge that we have. God has given us knowledge of our Savior, Jesus Christ. To act wisely is, is acting correctly on, how, on what we do with that knowledge. So it was the same thing for me when I was running track in Plantagenet. I knew I was going to be running. I knew I needed my running shoes with me, just like the virgins knew they needed the lamp, they needed the extra oil. And unlike, like the virgins, I didn't know what terrain I would be facing, and they didn't know how long the bridegroom was going to take. Yet, I left my shoes at home, and it, if it seems foolish for me to do that to you guys, you know, to go to a track meet and leave your running shoes at home, it should also seem foolish to you guys to, you know, wait for the bridegroom to show, to show up with absolutely no oil. They had a job, and yet they weren't prepared for the job. Yet it was the wise who were obedient to what they were called to do. They lived with a practicality for the unknown of when the bridegroom would return. And this puts us in a similar situation as these virgins. As I mentioned earlier, Jesus has referred to himself as the bridegroom, and therefore we are like these virgins who, uh, who are waiting, and we are also waiting on Jesus' return. We are waiting for the bridegroom to return also. After Jesus rose from the dead, he ascended into heaven and is ruling from above. Yet Jesus also promised that he would return. Like the virgins, we don't know when Jesus will return. There's an ambiguity, like the virgins in the parable, but also for us. We don't know when Jesus will return. And Jesus makes this explicit in the previous passage. Uh, so, if you're in your Bibles right now, you can turn a page back. And Jesus gives a similar warning in Matthew 24, verses 42, where Jesus says, Therefore, stay awake, for you do not know on what day your Lord is coming. This is true. None of us know when our Lord is coming. But did you catch that? He says, therefore, stay awake. Did you notice with the virgins? They got drowsy and they went to sleep. So what's going on? And that raises this question for us. Well, if Jesus is telling his disciples to stay awake, because we do not know when he will return, why does he tell a parable where both the wise and the foolish fall asleep. Like, what's going on? What does Jesus mean by these things? Great question. I'm glad you guys asked. Because I wrote down an answer. Uh, so remember, Jesus is telling a parable. He isn't literally saying, you shouldn't fall asleep. Like, he is our God. He is the one who created us. He knows our bodies need sleep. So he isn't saying you literally can never fall asleep. 
He was telling us to stay vigilant. He was telling us to be prepared for his return as the wise virgins were. Because we do not know when it will happen, all these virgins went to sleep. Um, So, like, while all these virgins went to sleep, he doesn't condemn them in the parable for us. It's not the point. He doesn't condemn them for literally sleeping, but he condemns instead the foolish virgins for being unprepared and sleeping on the job. So uh, the fools slept on the job while they were supposed to be vigilant. They were supposed to be prepared for what they were supposed to do. Uh, so we find ourselves in Advent season. Uh, there's candles there, two candles lit on the, I don't know, the banner. And uh, it's the same thing for us. So uh, when we think about Advent, it's around Christmas time where we're reminded of the waiting period for Israel, how they're waiting for their Messiah to come the second time. And it's the same thing for us today. With Advent, we're reminded that the Lord is coming again. He has promised us that he is coming again. That's a good promise. So moving on in the text, in verses 6 and 7, we also read that the bridegroom uh, in the parable returns at midnight. So for the virgins, he returns at an unexpected hour, just like our Lord will. And this is why the virgins rose and they trimmed their lamps. So if there are foolish virgins that Jesus is talking about, you know, he's contrasting the wise and the foolish. So if there are foolish, surely there will be consequences for their actions. And so that brings us to the next point in the next section of the text. So the fools and their demise. And we read in verse, uh, verses 8 to 12. And the fool said to the, or sorry, and the foolish said to the wise, "Give us some of your oil, for our lamps are going out." But the wise answered, saying, "Since there will not be enough for us and you, rather go to the dealers and buy for yourself." And while they were going to buy, the bridegroom came, and those who were ready went with him to the marriage feast, and the door was shut. Afterwards, the other virgins also came, saying. Lord, Lord, open to us. But he answered, Truly, I say to you, I do not know you. So what is the result for the foolish virgins? They are unprepared for the bridegroom when he does arrive. And they are unable to join in the marriage feast because they went to go do something else inside. They went to go by oil. So when they do finally arrive at this wedding feast, they plead to be let into the wedding. But the bridegroom says that he doesn't know them. And we should take a step back and look at kind of that situation. Jesus is telling this parable where he says... Hey, the the wedding party, you know, those closest to the bride, I don't know. It's a little odd and it should stick out to us as something that we should take note of. Jesus is saying these these virgins, these bridesmaids weren't just guests at these weddings. They're close, but uh, at the wedding, but they weren't invited in because they're unknown. And like I said, it should stick out to us like a sore thumb. 
So commentator Leon Morris, he says this, If we reason that no bridegroom would say that he did not know some of the invited guests, we miss the sting in this story. Jesus is not telling a story about something that actually happened. He is warning people of the dreadful fate of those who know that they should be watching for the coming of the Son of Man and do not do this. Thereby, they exclude themselves from any place among the people of God. The Savior cannot recognize them among the saved. Jesus' point isn't that you need enough oil to get into the party. Jesus is warning people about his return. He's warning people to be prepared for this second coming when he returns. Jesus wants us to be prepared. If they're not, or sorry, if we are not prepared, we will face the same fate as these foolish virgins. They will, in the same way that they cried out, Lord, Lord, in desperation, Jesus will give those who act just as foolishly the same response. I do not know you. And this should terrify us. And this isn't the first time Jesus has given this warning either. Matthew 7, 21 to 24. Jesus tells us, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven but only the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and drive out demons in your name and perform many miracles? Then I will tell them plainly, I never knew you. Away from me, you doers of evil. Jesus warns of our faith if we are unprepared for his return. It is a terrible fate where we will spend eternity apart from Him and the goodness that He shows to us every day in our life. So we must be prepared for His return. But what does Jesus want from us? What what does this parable mean for us? Well, Jesus tells us uh, in verse 13, where we find also our application for this text. So Jesus says, Watch. Therefore, for you neither know the day nor the hour. So Jesus, though, thus far, has uh, told us this parable of ten virgins, and they're waiting for this bridegroom to return. Similar to how we are waiting today for Jesus' return. For us to watch for him is to be prepared. He's telling us to, be, to watch and this is compared to these ten vir- or to five of the virgins who were prepared. We are to be like these virgins who have enough oil. But what does that mean for us? Does it mean we carry a bottle of extra virgin olive oil wherever we go, just, just in case? No, obviously not. I think we all know that. But we ought to look around the context to, to understand more broadly about what's going on and what it means for us to be prepared and what it means for us to be wise. So again, when we go back to the previous text from last week, we see Jesus has commanded us also to be like wise servants. So he says in Matthew 24, 
verses 45 and 46. Who then is the faithful and wise servant whom his master has set over his household to give them their food at the proper time? Blessed is that servant whom his master will find so doing when he comes. For us to be wise servants, for us to be prepared like the wise virgins, is to live like these wise servants, to do as they were commanded to do. We are to live as we have been commanded by our Lord. But I also want to be very cautious here and be very careful. It is not the things that we do that make us acceptable to God. It is the perfect work of Jesus Christ in whom our faith lies. We cannot do enough to earn God's favor. There is far too wide a gap between God's perfect holiness above and our wretched sinfulness to do anything remotely good enough to earn even a sliver of favor in the sight of God. So uh, I heard this illustration from a documentary called American Gospel. It's available. There's a shorter version on YouTube and a longer version on Netflix if you have it. It's really good. Recommend it. But I heard this illustration from them. Okay, so picture yourself. You're in the forest. You're walking along a path. And you grab two rocks. Right? You see them on the side of the road or on the side of the path. Right? Take one rock and you strike one against the other. And you leave the scratch. What are the consequences? It's not really any consequences, right? No one cares. Maybe if someone sees you, they might say, you know, they might raise an eyebrow, but, you know, it's not really any consequences. But say you keep walking along that same path, and you see a rusted out car that's in a, in a farm field. It's been there 60, 70 years. It's just, it's done. It's rusted out. Take that same rock, and you walk up to it, Scratch it. Again, what are the consequences? There's not really any consequences, but you kind of intuitively know that it's a little bit more serious, right? Keep walking along the path, and now you, you exit the forest, and you come out onto the street. There's a used car dealership. Same thing. Take that rock, scratch one of the cars. Now again, you know you're going to be in trouble now. There is some consequences. It is serious. You might have to pay for damage. You'd have to pay for damages. You might even get slapped with a fine. But then say you walk a little further down the street. And it's the same thing. Take that, that rock. Now all of a sudden it's a Ferrari dealership. Brand new cars in the lot. Same thing. You scratch one of those cars. Now you're in some serious trouble. You know, there's probably going to be, like, you're going to have to pay for damages that you might not even be able to be afford. You know, you might have fines. You might even get thrown in jail. It's serious. When we sin, we are scratching the holy and righteous God whose value does not compare because he is of infinite worth. The consequences for scratching an infinite God are likewise infinite. We have a tendency in our culture to say, it's just a little white lie. Yet, it's the action every time in this illustration was the same thing. It's a scratch every time. But what dictated the seriousness of it 
was the thing we were scratching. And when we sin against God, we were scratching something of infinite worth. And so when we say, no, that's just a little white lie, well, it's not the lie that's really the issue. It's the one who has commanded us not to. We have scratched the infinite and holy God. And our sin, you know, the scratch isn't an oopsie either, like you're doing with the two rocks. It's high treason against the king of the universe. We willfully commit high treason when we sin. We willfully disobey the king of the universe to whom we owe our allegiance fully. For us to think that we can earn favor after we've willfully betrayed the holy God of the universe is foolish. We cannot earn favor in the sight of our God by our own works and our own merit. Yet we should know that Jesus Christ has gone to the cross to pay for sin. But, you know, we often get pigeonholed to this idea that Jesus went to the cross and that that's what we focus on. And while I don't want to diminish the fact that it was an excruciating death, and it was, lots of people have died on the Roman cross. It may have been awful, but lots of people have done this. Yet Jesus Christ, who is fully man and fully God, willingly bore the infinite wrath of God for us because he is infinite in his being. He could pay this infinite price that we could never pay back. The chasm that we could never cross between us and God because of our sinfulness and his perfect holiness, Jesus made possible to cross. We can now have peace with God because of what Jesus Christ has done. It's not merely about his death. His death, his death did atone for us, but he paid the wrath of God, which we fully deserve. Jesus' call for us to be prepared is not just a command. It's, it's not a command to be good. We're not trying to earn God's favor by just being good. If we could just be good, we'd be fine. But that's not the case. This chasm between us and God is far too wide. So Jesus' call in this parable to be prepared is a call for us to respond in faith and obedience to what he has first done for us. To live out our faith is to have the extra oil, like the wise virgins had. We live out our faith through serving one another, through loving our neighbors, not just here at church, but your literal neighbors, those around you, in your workplaces, around your homes. It's also through preaching the gospel to our neighbors. We live, you know, I was shocked. I I grew up here, so I know what it's like. How many people don't have faith here? And, and living in Abbotsford, there is a much higher Christian population. So, so if you live here, which all of you do, except my wife and baby, you, know, you don't have the luxury of just assuming people are Christians. We must preach the gospel to our neighbors. We must preach the gospel to ourselves and remind ourselves of the goodness of what Jesus Christ has done on our behalf. We must love them. Through, through preaching of the gospel, through service. This is what Jesus Christ has called us to do. We are to respond in faith. It is an outworking of our faith. 
Well, there is a clear call for all of us to be watchful and prepared. There is also a warning in this text, too. We don't know when our Lord will return. He has made this clear throughout this section of of Scripture, all of a discourse. We don't know when our Lord will return. And so something I've noticed uh, comparatively to where I'm living now in Abbotsford, people who grew up in church, they just fizzle out. It's, it's not the same, but people here, it, it's different. They'll say, well, I'll make peace with God when I'm older. And if you, that is you sitting in the pews, Jesus is warning us not to do that. That is not the call he has given us. We don't know when he will return. We don't know when he will come. But no matter what sins we have committed, no matter how grievous we might think they are, we cannot outsin the grace and the goodness of God. He is always willing to take us home. He is always willing to, to give us forgiveness through the blood that Jesus Christ shed and bearing the wrath of God. We cannot outsin the grace of God. Uh, so I'm going to close in prayer and uh, I'll hand it back over to Scott. So Father, we thank you out of your abundant love for us, Lord, that you sent your son to the cross who willingly paid the price that we owed, who owed you a debt, Lord. Lord, through your Holy Spirit that your son and the Father has sent, Lord, you give us new life. Lord, you show us kindness every day and we can see this in texts like this where you don't just leave us, but you promise you will return. And Lord, you give us warnings. You show us these kindnesses. And so, Father, I thank you for the kind of God that you are, that you are a God of love and you call us to be the same way, to love those around us, to serve and preach the gospel to our neighbor. Father, we thank you that you love us because you loved us first. Lord, we pray this in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen.